2: Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African American community.
1: And good evening, I'm William Hosea. An implicit bias, unlike explicit bias, is an unconscious association, belief, or an attitude toward any social group. Due to implicit biases, people may often attribute certain qualities or characteristics to all members of a particular group, a phenomenon known as
2: stereotyping. It is important to remember that implicit biases operate almost entirely on an unconscious level. While explicit biases and prejudices are intentional and controllable, implicit biases are less so. A person may even express explicit disapproval Of a certain attitude or belief while still harboring similar biases on a more unconscious level.
1: While people might like to believe that they are not susceptible to these biases and stereotypes, the the reality is that everyone engages in them whether they like it or not. This reality, however, does not mean that you are necessarily prejudiced or inclined to discriminate against other people. It simply means that your brain is working in a way that makes associations and generalizations.
2: This broadcast is our follow-up conversation to last week's introduction to the concept of implicit bias. With us again is Monica Fleetwood Black, a licensed clinical social worker, currently with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians. And she focuses on the mental health counseling branch of social work and is also a principal presenter with the DTCC Implicit Bias Training Organization.
1: Also with us is Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte who in addition to routine law enforcement duties works extensively to improve police and community relations. He has hosted workshops for civilians and conducted training sessions for Indiana State Police Cadets and seasoned rank and file his efforts are aimed at creating a greater understanding of the complexities of what it means to protect and to serve.
2: And also joining us, we are pleased to have attorney William Morris, uh, who many of you know is the host of WFIU's jazz program, Just You and Me, for which he created the upbeat Soul Kitchen featuring funky jazz, R&B, gospel, and rock. And if we're fortunate, maybe he'll play some tonight. But anyway, he began Mm -hmm. at WFIU after five years volunteering here at community radio station WFHB, where he hosted such programs as the Tuesday Afternoon Mix, ORA, Latina, and the Jazz Menagerie. He broadcasts with his radio handle of Brother William. He's a full-time attorney with Mann Legal Services, uh, and Morris previously was in private practice that concentrated on civil rights and employment discrimination. Uh, They all join us for this part two conversation to shed light upon systematic Oh, I'm sorry, systemic implicit bias and ways to reverse and or manage this behavior. Monica, Ruben, and William, welcome to Bring It On.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's always, it's always a pleasure, a treat and an honor to be here with you all. We and oh.
2: we'll be mindful that uh, William is driving so we won't get him too passionate and irate over on the other side. We'll just <laughs> keep him calm, cool and collected there.
1: Oh, shoot. Let me uh, refresh everybody's memory real quick here. Uh, In our last conversation, we kind of ended up talking about Black women's mental health Mm -hmm. and the issues surrounding uh, Naomi Osaka and how she canceled uh, her media interviews to focus on her mental health. Meghan Markle came up and I think uh, Monica, you brought up uh, Beyonce and how she, Mm -hmm. she, what she does to protect her mental health. Mm
2: -hmm. So we'll go ahead and uh, pick it up from there. Maybe in the form of a question, we'll, we'll pose this, do you see patterns that are similar with all of the three names that William mentioned, especially women that are on such a high profile, that they in a large sense have become easy targets and being African-American doesn't make it any easier.
4: Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the pattern has been there, right? We're just now getting to see it, I think in more of a public space and more of a public arena because, women and men of all shapes, sizes, and colors have been dealing with mental health. If you have a mind and you have feelings, then you have mental health, right? And and for a number of different reasons, that topic has been taboo or something we like don't air dirty laundry about in quotes or something we dismiss. And I think um, the women you mentioned, Naomi, you know, Beyonce, Megan, um, as, as we were talking about last time, they have brought their mental health to the forefront of the conversation and, and enforced it in such a way that they are saying, you're not going to dismiss this. You're not going to dismiss my feelings. You're not going dis- to dismiss my wellness um, for the sake of sacrificing myself for the greater good or sacrificing myself for fans or sacrificing myself for, um, in Naomi's case, like press and, and um reporters and such. And I think the standard throughout our history has been ye, the expectation is you will sacrifice yourself for the greater good. You will do what is expected of you because that's what they want. That's what give the people what they want and and at whatever cost. And I think those three women are just the most recent example of active resistance to saying, no, I matter. My mental health matters. My feelings matter. And it, and it's just as important as your news story, or uh, or a, a seat at the royal table, or you know whatever whatever big concert Beyonce's got going on, or whatever it is. You know, I just I think those women are beacons to kind of shedding light on on the reality that um, you know we've made space for other people's mental health. Uh, in the world, and now black women are saying you're going to make space for our mental health too, and people don't like that because that often means we're doing what's best for us and not what other people want us to do. So, um, if, yeah, go ahead.
2: If I hear you, if I hear you correctly, I hear you saying it's best for them to be authentic, be themselves. Now, now that's not easy, especially in a world where uh, you may, in fact, have handlers. That uh, tell you where to go, what to say, what to do, what points to stress. but yet, through all that, you want to be authentic. And one person in, and that I have in mind that we've not talked about is, of course, Vice President Kamala Harris. Mm. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, she got hit with some of it on the campaign trail, mm-hmm. but now I'm thinking that while she's in this position and more and more responsibilities are being hoisted on her, uh, how can she handle all this? so I, somewhere in there is a question, but also an observation. I just I yield it back to you. I can answer well, that. She laughs a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, and is that a deflection? Is that a tool? And so we ask our clinical uh, um, social worker that question.
4: Yeah, um, certainly humor is a way folks um, deal with difficult emotions, and you'll see that. I mean, I see that with the kids that I work with. Um, kids will tell you like a really serious thing or a trauma they've experienced and they'll laugh behind it and that's just a coping um, mechanism that's pretty common throughout every demographic of human existence um, because difficult emotions are hard to lean into and hard to sit with so if you attach humor to them it makes it more palatable not only for the person having those feelings but also the person that's with them or bearing witness to those feelings. Um, and it's not, I'm not passing any judgment on the use of humor uh, to cope. Uh, it's, it's just a natural human phenomenon as far as I'm concerned. And it's not a good or a bad thing, but I think it's important uh, for folks to know when they're using humor to mask the real feelings or when they're using humor as a tool. Because I also think, Humor can be a tool. It can be a weapon. Like, look at so many comedians, you know, they're using their humor to talk about their pain, you know, and that's, that's beautiful. That's when humor gets weaponized, you know, in like a good way. So it's not a, oh, that's bad to do or good to do. Like if Kamala needs to laugh it off and brush it off and keep things light and keep things moving then she's got to do, you know, then that's great. Um, And I also think, in general, we take life way too seriously. And all of us need to kind of laugh more. My husband is constantly telling me that. So if I repeat it out loud here, then I'll remind myself that that's important. So yeah. um, So I think it's twofold, right? Like humor, humor as a tool. And then, and then also, let's be real, people use humor to mask emotions. And that, that I'm, I can't get behind. Um, But but I think used um, strategically, it can be a really effective way to communicate. It also makes difficult things more palatable, right? And if we're trying to talk about implicit bias, racism, sexism, and we can attach a little joy to it, well, maybe we'll we'll attract folks to the conversation who might've been really turned off by you know anger, let's say, as, as opposed to joy. So those uh, are some thoughts.
1: I think uh, comedians, are an excellent example of people who cope with uh, stress and how they do, how they maintain their mental health. I want to bring Ruben into the conversation. Um, Ruben, we invited you on because we've been talking about, of course, implicit, explicit biases, and we wanted to uh, invite you in to present a perspective from law enforcement. So we've been talking about how different people cope with, uh, maintain their mental health. But what what are some of the things that you teach uh, the law enforcement community on how to cope with mental health, because that is a community where the stress level is always high. I mean, from from the moment you that you go to work to the moment you clock out or if you ever clock out the stress level is elevated compared to the rest of us, like myself, who's retired, you know, no stress whatsoever. So what what are some of the coping mechanisms that you teach? But well, one of the things that that we try to uh,
0: tackle is understanding what it is and 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 be aware of it. But the biggest problem I can tell you that we faced in the beginning is that when we when we say okay we're gonna we're gonna train on, on implicit bias, one of the things that we hear a lot is that wait a minute I'm not racist, and people just hear that word and just shut down on you. So we had to take a different approach, and we we've been doing this. That talking about implicit uh, biases for about eight years now. So now we're trying to uh, revamp the training and make it actually just training for implicit bias, that topic alone, and really try to, to emphasize that we don't one is saying you're racist. We're just saying that we have external influences. You were raised a certain way, you were raised a certain culture, and it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. We, we all have it. Now, what you do with it is a different thing. Now. As sworn officers, we have to have that in check. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing. You know, I mean, I, I'm I, 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 when we use examples, you know, I, I like a certain color. You could say, hey, you kind of implicit towards that. Well, yes I am, but is that negative? No. But for us, we have to be very careful that when we deal with the public and particularly people that don't look like you, you have to be mindful of the different culture. You have to be mindful that people are raised differently have to remind people to talk differently. And just because someone from a different culture is is talking loud doesn't mean that they're upset with you, doesn't mean that uh, they're annoyed. You know, it could be that's just the way they talk, you know. So it's a very complex, it's a very uh, 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 sensitive topic. So we are trying to really reach out to the officers and say, hey, no one is saying you're racist. We're human. We are human. Uh, However, we do hold ourselves to a higher standard. We have the public watching us constantly. You have the camera now on you. So you have to slow things down and you have to be aware uh, of how you carry yourself and what you do. Now, one thing that's a positive thing. Uh, once we, we go that path and people realize, listen, we're not saying that you're racist. People truly want to understand what is it that I could do to make this communication easier for all of us. I, I And one thing I also like about the new generation coming up now. They are the why generation They ask why constantly. And that forces us to explain. And that's great. Because one of the things that we're trying to do now is we want people to explain, meaning our officers, to explain why you're doing what you're doing. And if it takes time, it takes time. So we do look at that particular topic. We acknowledge that we have to stay on top of it uh, because the stress is real for us uh so that's a different dynamic as well so do we train our people in that obviously we should definitely do constantly uh but at the same time we i I also acknowledge that i have to make sure that i don't shut them down because they think
1: we're saying racist and that's not the case you know that that word uh racist seems to be uh a trigger it is It, it 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 immediately uh puts people on the defensive, whether you call them racist or not, when they hear the word, they go on the defensive to make sure that you know they're not a racist. But then many people turn right around and display racist behavior, which tells me they really don't understand the meaning of the word. Um, I want to throw this question out to all three of you, but we'll, we'll let uh, Brother Will start first. You don't mind me calling Brother Will, do you?
3: No, no, because you and me are brothers in more than one way.
1: All right. That's what I'm you talking about. I <laughs> use them? You see how I
3: use, them? I use it a lot.
1: <laughs> so here we go. When you look at the political climate, you have some politicians, and we know who they are, strenuously objecting to teaching critical race theory, um, just going off the deep end over the 1619 Project. And ultimately, in my opinion, they are objecting to teaching uh, African-American or Black history, period.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: now within the context of implicit explicit bias where does that fit in
3: that's a hard question brother you asked me a whole lot there and i you know what sometimes um i already have answers to questions that aren't being asked yet so if you don't mind i gotta say two things first then i can jump into that the first thing is that i use humor a lot and anybody that knows me knows i use humor a lot i've used humor in very serious closing arguments and very serious court cases but You have to be very careful on how you use humor. And um, I think I've had a lot of years of practice. I still get it wrong sometimes, just like I get things wrong implicit bias wise. I get things wrong. Um, But um, but I I like to use humor and I don't know why. But that's one thing. The second thing is after our very last radio meeting, um, I went to a local restaurant to get some food. And I was paying the young lady for the food. And I noticed that they had some gay rights flags up LGBT flags up. And I said to her, she gave me my change. I said, thank you, ma'am. And then I caught myself. I said, I called you ma'am. Is that correct? She said, well, that's not really what I prefer to be called. I prefer to be called they or them. And that was directly from the conversation we had the last time. So I hope that I would model something for the people that are listening. When you get a chance to practice a new language thing, then go ahead and practice it. And that's what I did. I did exactly what my sister Monica said to do ask a question and let the person speak into that space and she she that lady was so that um the person was so appreciative that i'd taken the time to ask that's what we talked about the last time implicit bias do we create space enough for people to be able to come in to talk through their doubts their anxieties their their how they react to accusations of the word racism or these kind of things You know, you and I—the last time we were on the radio—also talked about the language that's changing in the LGBTQ community. And you and I are old enough, and Clarence is definitely old enough to see. I'm using humor. Clarence is definitely old enough to remember when the question was: Should we be called colored, or Negro, Afro-American, you know, African-American? Where I mean, that has happened in our lifetime, right? The language of what we as Black people are called has changed, Mm -hmm. and how we perceive ourselves. That's a um, good point. Yeah. And the other day I was watching this thing that was on our local PBS station about Jimi Hendrix. And it was a three hour documentary. And I mean, I almost cried because this brother is living in between Harlem and lower Manhattan because he doesn't know where he fits in. He doesn't know if he's black enough to be hanging out in Harlem, playing with the Isley brothers or he's not black enough so that the black that that our people reject him. And he's going down in the village and hanging out with Bob Dylan. And I think there are so many people that are like that in America that don't quite fit in anywhere necessarily. I think I've been in that place sometimes that you, oh, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting mental health place to be in where we're trying to see where do we go and who who who, who do we say is behind us and this kind of thing. So if I was going to take your question now and then aim that toward the political question, first thing is Kamala Kamala Harris, also came up through the criminal law system, which is very male dominant. So I give her credit for that. She didn't just come into politics; she she came in through criminal law. She's the state attorney general of California. That is a very very serious, male dominated job. Mm-hmm. And so she, you know, has has to have special skills, humor being one of them, but probably uh, an acumen and an intelligence that, you know, she's very confident in. She probably has a, a good sense of what justice means to her. Um, she has a good sense for how to evaluate cases. I'm not really answering your question, but I'm just trying to to think it through while I'm talking. Well, wait, wait, I gotta tell you one more thing. Okay. I was also thinking not so much about Beyonce and Naomi and Meghan Markle, but I was also thinking about the sister um Ocasia Ortiz, or you know, the sister out of New York City. Think about how she has to deal with her mental health and the and the the Muslim sister in Minnesota. I mean, those sisters ain't making fifty million dollars a year or going to a castle, and they're having to deal with that in frontline situations, like I think Williams asking me about, because they right. are in the political morass of Washington D.C. and they're taking the frontal attacks from the Trump and the conservatives and giving it back and giving it back. That's all I got to say. Well, uh,
2: you just heard William Morris, and for those who were perhaps thinking, yes, he did arrive safely to his destination. Hence the passion, yeah, the extra passion in his voice. And this is my wedding anniversary, too.
3: This is my wedding anniversary.
2: Happy anniversary. anniversary. And um, <laughs> thank you for trying to, to uh, date me by the different iterations <laughs> of being Black in America. Uh, William Morris is the host of WFIU's jazz program, Just You and Me, for which he created the upbeat Soul Kitchen. And also, he is uh, no stranger to the WFHD. He was here uh, back in the day with the Tuesday afternoon mix. Fora Latina, and the Jazz Menagerie. He is now a full-time attorney with Mann uh, Law what Services. Law
3: it's called Morris Law Office. Let's get it right now. Come on, bro. Morris Law, law
2: Offices. And if you're in need Hold of me. help right now, just reach out to Morris Law Offices. And he has previously uh, spent a lot of time in private practice that concentrate on civil rights and employment discrimination. I threw a plug in there for you. Thank also, you, we, have, um, we have Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte, who in addition to routine law enforcement duties works extensively to improve police and community relations. And my hat goes off the end because he has put together some phenomenal workshops in the community. And the title was Gripping and Engaging. It was how to survive a pullover when you're pulled over by the police department. And of course, we have with us uh, Monica Fleetwood Black, a licensed clinical social worker, uh, currently with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians and has done phenomenal work with the BTC, Implicit Bias Training Organization. That's where I first saw Monica in action. And I tell you, she was gently pressing the group, getting us out of our comfort zone, which you have to do with this conversation. I I want to uh, pose a question. Lately, some states have been getting away with changing their educational curriculum to ignore that certain things in history didn't happen, namely slavery. And the black experience, they're trying to, I'll just say they're trying to whitewash in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's its openly going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm shaking my head like, you're causing yourself more problems. We have yet to just as a nation address it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, was it not Bill Clinton that said, our nation's long overdue for an open discussion on race.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Then his whole world is flipped. So, um, you know, I know this was asked earlier, and I, I just I want to press the responses a little bit more. I'm not sure if everyone had a chance to chime in, but if you've not been able to comment on that on this topic, please do so.
4: Yeah, yeah, I I would love to comment. You know because. Um, I think I shared last time, you know, I have an undergrad and a, a master's degree in African American studies and African diaspora studies, diaspora meaning the spread of people across the globe. So not just Black people in America, but Black Black people from the continent of Africa and, and all the places, you know, we've landed, whether voluntarily or not. Um, and there's diasporas of all people. There's the, a Jewish diaspora, there's a European diaspora. Um, and so, I would say that the most recent um, stuff I've seen about banning critical race theory, they've been trying to do that since people tried to get African-American studies Mm -hmm. programs off the ground in the 60s. Mm -hmm. There has always been pushback to to um, folks trying to create space in academia, which is largely white, predominantly male, um, because because. Folks have been able to control the narrative, you know, and if you've got people of color, indigenous people, women entering those spaces and speaking their truth to power and sharing their stories, then that's a direct pushback to the dominant narrative that we have been fed. I mean, American history was created so that there was winners and losers and the winners were white men who were heroes and the losers were all all the rest of us, you know. And so when you have programs in universities and classes within public schools that provide information that directly contradicts the the lie that we're often fed as children, you're going to have a lot of pushback to that because that then pushes people in power, white men, white women in power, to acknowledge the mistakes of their forefathers and foremothers and and take responsibility for their own actions today and how they're creating change in our community. So I would say the pushback we're seeing is not new. Even at my time at Indiana University, there was talks of combining the Black Studies program with Ethnic Studies, combining it with you know Latino uh, studies and trying to like lump us all together as if studying the most diverse people of the world can just be done under one you know massive. Um, group and there was uh, so much pushback in in my graduate time to to dismantle uh, the African American Studies program uh, essentially and it didn't work thank goodness because of um, the dedication uh, of the professors and students and staff uh, in the Black Studies program here at IU and it's still going strong. Um, but the attacks are not new. We're just now—it's now part of a bigger conversation. It's now part of a conversation that's happening. Um, it's more wide stream, and and I think the reason we're seeing so much pushback push is because people don't want to have to admit uh, the story we've been telling and the story we created wasn't exactly 100% the truth, and it left out a lot of very important perspectives and stories. So, so I'll hand it off with that, and oh, we're I- going
2: to. I think with that in mind, uh, you run into problems, especially when you try to take a certain curriculum away from young minds, young inquisitive minds. It's like the old uh, uh, tactic of telling a child, no, don't do that. And what are they going to end up wanting to do? They're going to want to go do it. So you tell them, no, we're not going to teach this because you don't need to know this what do you think they're going to do as soon as they get the opportunity? Plus you have the internet and it's hard to erase all of the internet. So people are going to go out and find answers on themselves. And I'm also reminded that the pushback and somewhat censorship that we're experiencing, I think of books like, uh, like Tom Sawyer, uh, which my daughter now is reading and she stops and comes and asks me, daddy, the language in here. And we have conversations about the things that she's reading to try to bring her up to speed on what's going on in this world. So, I think every family, every individual needs to take some ownership and learn and find the knowledge and find the history. That's why I'm so happy for, uh, uh, was it the 1719 Project? Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that that was put together because that is an education. uh, And and I encourage everyone if you can to get that book. So I'll hand this off.
4: Just so we're clear, 1619.
2: Thank you. I, I deducted 100 years. 1619.
3: <laughs> and you know what's interesting about that, um, um, Clarence, is that if you look at the African diaspora from the Latino point of view, the story is really 1498. Right. 1619 is just when Africans arrived in the, in the land that is now the United States. But I had been writing a book about African-Americans in Mexico, and that was 100, 110 years before that. So the diaspora was taking place. That's one of the things that I think we talked about the last time, how African-Americanized we can make blackness. And really, okay. when you spend time down in Cuba with the Cubans or the black Guatemalans or the black um, Hondurans, I mean, it's, 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 it, it's, it, there's a lot there that reminds us of ourselves, but it's different. It is different. And, um, you know, but anyway, that's just another thing that really the project is more like 1498 in my eyes.
2: I'm so glad we have you all here tonight with us, uh, keeping us, checking us and keeping us together. (laughs)
3: Um,
2: Ruben, I I really do want to ask you that in this age of just um, all that we've gone through, and we've talked about this before as far as uh, uh, things that are being examined in law enforcement, uh, efforts to reform law enforcement, implicit bias. I long ago asked you a question about how psychological testing is used, in law enforcement? And is it that there's such a shortage that sometimes results are ignored? Or, or is there an effort to make sure that they get candidates, qualified candidates who, who have the emotional stability to do the things we're asking them to do? And I think it's still- Part of that is, is yes, we, we, we do go back and check constantly.
0: But one thing I wanna say, I wanna to backtrack to what Monica said. Something she said sparked a memory to me, <clears throat> and it's this. Our black and Latino troopers, when the riots and the, the, the protests were taking place, they got beat up the most. Because people that looked like us were saying, calling us traitors, uh, doing the white man's bidding, uh, why would you wear that uniform? And when Monica said, I'm thinking, wow, wait a minute. They are really at this point, you know, had to struggle with, you're trying to protect People that are your people, and then those are the same people that are calling you all these names. And I could tell you that when it has happened to me, it it it, it took me back. It, it really did, and I remember those days. And I remember now with the young folks now, depending what word you use and what were you talking to, I'm not going to use that language. You will get at the police, you know, and. What I find after when I talk to the young people is that you can see it in their eyes how hurt they are because they sworn to help people and want to help, but then they are the main target of their anger, and that anger is real. So thank you, Monica, for saying that because that really opened my eyes when I heard you say that, and I thought about our young people in the front line. So, Brother Boone, so when you say that as far as the psychological health, you know, uh, I make it a point, and we do make it a point when we talk to the young people and uh, we talk to their media sergeants and make sure that they're doing all, all of our troopers, let me get that straight, but particularly the ones are uh, of color that are being targeted right now, this that does concern me. And uh, that is one of the things that I like to do when we give an opportunity is say, hey, you know, we need to make sure that our people are doing well. Because what affects them now can affect them later and their family as well. So, so that is that is a very crucial, uh, important question that you asked there. And uh, we do we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure that they're healthy. And in fact, we've been trying to be very proactive and and on a, on a, on a, a weekly basis, uh, send out emails. So if, if you need assistance and you need help, hey, let's 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 get it for you. And uh, we have a particular. Uh, uh, fitness staff that does that constantly uh, we have multiple chaplains that does that do that as well so we have mechanism in place to provide assistance now i tell you the one that I, I worry about is the one that we're not we're not aware of that that concerns me um because unfortunately we can't be everywhere every single time but monica thank you for what you said because that is i, I what you said i put into my world that i live in and and i, I remember the hurt in these young troops, you know, after we debrief and, and 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 the anger that was towards them and really they they were not the issue, they were not the problem. But we still have to stand there and, and, and do what's right
2: for everyone. I, I have a follow-up to that if I can. I, I um not lost to me as uh, the January sixth uh right as a trainer you witnessed that real time like everyone else and we had you on the show to talk about that a little while ago but now with this topic of implicit bias um what's your thought do you think black uh, officers were targeted and hispanic officers were targeted more And, and and i still remember the heroics of one officer who really put his life on the line to prevent something horrific really horrific from going on so can you comment on that
0: I don't know if you saw that particular uh, 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 video. They showed two male black officers, mature officers. They were sitting down side by side, and they were just talking. And I don't know if you've you heard, they were saying, one was saying to the other, what is going on here? What, what, what is this? Why are they calling us this, these names? And that, that brother started crying. I mean, he, he just broke down and started crying. And I thought to myself, I think that is the first time that the public witnessed an officer of that level crying like that. Mm-hmm. And the reason why he was crying, because he was the target of the racial negativity that he was being hit with. Mm-hmm. You know, So I, I felt for him 100 percent because I, I understood what he was saying. When he sat down to the other black officer and said, why is this happening? It was a legitimate question he was asking. He couldn't understand it. Because it's the first time that it was overwhelming that you have a group of people for how many hours that they have endured that particular aggression, negativity, and you know, I, when I get a chance and I reach out to the community and, and it's just myself in a room with 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 people that are not officers, one of the things that I try to emphasize is that hey, and I'm not in uniform when I talk to, to people. Uh, I said, please understand this: we all have families, we all want to go home as well, and Please don't judge all of us for the action of the few. Uh, it, it, please don't do that because what happens is it's internalized and, and, and it, it doesn't really, how do I say this? It, it the, the ones that really want to, that are trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. You know, when you accuse of something, you know it's not true over and over and over again. It, 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 it does take a toll on you. So going full circle, when I when I saw that that young black man crying with the camera playing, and and the other officer just listening, I, and I, I I can remember he had his head down and he was just listening, and you know at that given time, uh, uh, I, I, things just slowed down for them. They had a chance to sit down and catch their breath, but they they were very human. They showed their emotions,
2: and it was there for the world to see. You know, uh, Ruben, um, I'm so glad you're with us because you're adding a perspective that uh, we so much wanted to hear. For those that have just tuned in, you just heard Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte, uh, who's joined us tonight. We also have with us um, licensed clinical social worker, Monica Fleetwood Black. And of course, um, we have with us attorney William Morris. And we're talking about systemic implicit bias and ways to reverse and or manage the behavior. I, I um, Ruben, I want you to continue, but perhaps from the um, uh, perspective of it's day one of training, If and, and this of course, if you're able to disclose some of your strategies as we train uh, state troopers, day one of training and, and the mix in your audience does not look like you. And from all accounts, you no doubt have read up on everyone that's in this particular class. So you know, a basic profile on every officer. How do you start a difficult conversation with them? Knowing that in a short while, relatively short period of time, they're gonna be armed, they're gonna be uh, in, in you know, with a badge on their chest, out there enforcing the law. So how would you start a conversation on implicit bias? And then I'm gonna ask Monica to do the same.
0: Oh, for, for what we do, We spend about six hours with them in in, in a day, but we come back and reinforce it again. But one of the things that we do, I'd like to show them a clip of the video, uh, uh, the Freedom Riders. I want to start with the history of the Freedom Riders and show, and and, and let me backtrack. We backtrack. And you're right. The majority of the officers, that we have all white, uh, white, particularly white men. And I want to make sure that I don't shut no one down because that defeats the purpose. So, the first thing I tell them, listen, this is not a beat up on white officer train. I let them know from up front. And you can see that they look at me like, oh my goodness, did he say that? Say, so, yep, I said that. It's not, you know, we just get that, get it out of the way. And I also get out of the way the big elephant in the room, you know, and the fear. And I tell them the fear about, you know, uh, uh, every time that we have a negativity right now, the fear is real in the black community as far as white officers coming, young black men. And, we, and I, I, I hit that elephant straight on in the car. But I also go ahead and show them the history with the Freedom Riders, what they experienced at the hands of the police at that given time. So I show them about a 45 minutes hour about that, and then I ask them a question. I'll ask them, "Can you tell me where your ancestors are from?" And that's what I want to know. Where are your where, where your ancestors are from? And they will tell me. You know, I go around the room; every single one will tell me. And I say to them, "Okay, that means somebody had to tell you where you're from." No, not ahead. Yes, yes. Okay, so now I just finished showing you the, the the freedom riders. What happened to them at the hands of the police? Do you think they are, and, and some of these people are still alive today? Do you think they're passing that on to their family members? And they're not ahead. Yes, they are. So now, who do you think black people, Latino people, are going to believe? Police or their family members? And you could hear a pin drop because now they've never been asked that before. So we start with the history of the police dealing with black people and Latinos in this country. And some of them uncomfortable, Yes, they are. But it's OK. We need to be uncomfortable among each other. And we give them the space to ask questions and we answer those questions. Now, at the same time, now we go into implicit biases. And why that is so important is because you're going to wear that uniform now and you've got to have that in check because we're all human and you have to be able to 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 understand that 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 particular part of you and make sure that you are doing the right things for the right reason so is it is a very complex uh, training that we do give but at the same time we come back full circle and when we talk about the escalation we are talking about implicit bias again when we're talking about excited delirium, mental health, we go back again and talk about that same topic. So it's intertwined. So I don't want to tell you that you know it's in one particular category. Or Different aspect of this comes into one, and we try to go that route. Now, what I what I what I noticed the culture that we have now, and I only can speak for the state police, the young generation is not the same when I went through. When I went through, uh, it was more uh, uh, paramilitary and we follow the Marines set of standards because that's what we were founded through. We do that to a degree in a sense of uh, fitness. But as far as educating people, we're doing a whole lot better job now than we did back then because we're touching topics that we're not. When I went through, we never talked about implicit bias. We never talked about ecstatic delivery. We never talk about mental health. We are doing that now. We're doing that now. And the generation coming through us right now are very, very aware, and and, and they are the why generation, and I like that. They're asking why, and I have no problem responding, but at the same time, now it's gonna be a communication. We don't have to always agree, but we have to have that communication.
2: Um, thank you, Ruben, for that. And Monica, I'd, I'd like for you to share with um, some of what I experienced when I sat through one of the workshops, uh, individuals that I worked with and, and how we experienced you and your, and your, and your colleague and, and how you got us out of this sort of comfortable comfort zone and sort of pushed us to sort of embrace and understand and, and just articulate some thoughts that we had. And then of course, uh, we're gonna ask uh, uh, brother William uh, to, to likewise respond after uh, Monica. So Monica, uh, please share with us.
4: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So um, the implicit bias community of practice delivers a three hour um, training that you experience, Clarence, and it's the same three hour training, um, you know, no matter who we're talking to, because we're trying to deliver like a unified, solidified, organized um, message. So, So when Brother William does implicit bias training, when I do, if you got it from someone else, everyone's getting the same training and Three hours might seem like a long time; it is not. I'm always trying to scramble and 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 fit more stuff in. So if we have the luxury of having six hours with folks, I think we could do you know a lot more, especially with opening up um, conversations and discussions. But the point I think of our of our um, Training is to provide some definitions. You know, when we say stereotype, what do we mean when we say implicit bias? What is that? How is it different from explicit bias? Um, Because I'll agree with Ruben, sometimes we get a lot of pushback like, whoa, I'm not racist. You know, I'm not I don't you know, I'm not prejudiced against anybody. And, um, you know, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that implicit bias is something our brains do as a survival mechanism. Um, our brains place things in categories. And sometimes when our brain is superpower, supercomputer, putting things in category categories and categorizing things in people, sometimes we get it wrong. And then we're lumping people in um, and unfairly making assumptions about them that aren't true. So it's just about bringing awareness to The fact that all of us have bias, it's not you're not a bad person or you're not racist because you have bias. I have bias. Um, It doesn't matter what color you are, what gender, um, but it's about being aware of it so you can slow down that quick categorization that our brains want to do. And that's just a product of being, we're animals and we've evolved and this is just part of the way our brains have evolved over time. And so if you, I think it's also about making this um, topic accessible and using accessible language like everyday people speak as opposed to the academy which gets really into itself and sounds feels so good sounds so smart and pretty and like i'm down for that i had to walk in those spaces too but everyday people can't access that and so i think one of the reasons i joined is cuz i want to make this approachable and bring our my real and authentic self to the table while i deliver training so I'm not just talking about facts and I can't wait to train with brother William this summer because everyone says that he, the way he trains is he delivers so many stories about himself. And I'm trying to incorporate more of that because I think people learn more when you bring your own sure. truth to the table, because I'm, we're real people, you know, we're not just here delivering facts. So, so part of it is some just basic definitions and information. There's times where we do like in the Zoom training now, I can't wait to get back to in-person training, but we'll do small group breakout sessions so people have time to discuss um, topics. Um, The end is really about um, giving people like tools. What are some actual tools you can do as an individual to address your own bias? What are tools you can do to address bias within your like meso community? So maybe within your family or within your church or within the Bloomington community and then macro, you know, what does that look like? Does that look like Indiana? Does that look like across the country? Or even if you're in an organization, you know, we push organizations to think about addressing bias as an individual, addressing bias within your relationship with one other person, another colleague, and then macro meaning within your whole organization. So we try to break it down so that people can think about those tiers and addressing it on tiers, right? Because it's not just the one-to-one person interactions, it's also how policies and practices that maybe aren't written down, but are just kind of like, this is the way we do things, how that helps to fuel implicit bias too, without anyone meaning to, or anyone trying to be hurtful or trying to be um, prejudiced or stereotyping or anything like that. So, um, and you know, our, our training has like some interactive parts and we try to, <laughs> there's a lot of cat slides. Cause again, we like to use humor to keep things light. Um, but I'm, I would say, I never feel like I have enough time to go over it, um, <laughs> to go over everything. And I, and we as a as a group are always talking about how can we create more space within training so that people have more time to discuss amongst themselves because some of the best learning happens in those small groups when you're able to kind of share and and talk so so yeah brother william certainly has his his flair uh, when he does his training and i hear it's pretty awesome so i can't wait to see it in in person live this summer so
3: take it away my man <laughs>
2: Brother William? I, I'm really curious.
0: I like to you see know, that training as well,
3: Brother William. Um, you know, I was listening to Ruben and I was thinking about um when they got the conviction in the George Floyd case, and George Floyd's family was standing next to the civil rights lawyer, Benjamin Clump. And they asked Benjamin Crump, um, you know, the guy out of Tallahassee, Florida, they asked him, they said, What is the single reason why you think the police um React so quickly to 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 black drivers, to situations where there's blacks in, that are involved, and and things like that. And the first two words he said was implicit bias, and it really I said, whoa, all right then, I'm on the right team. But you know, because I because I think there's just this thing that we get trained by all of these different sources, by TV, by our family, by people in school, by things we start to gravitate towards that develop these points of views that we can get about different people. And and I think all of us um, can use some sharpening. But I think it becomes especially right, really important when it's law enforcement, because law enforcement has such power. And, you know, when you look at the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights, you know, four of the five First Amendments are about police power, because it is really so you know, it's so strong in some countries, right? They take a person away, you never see them again because the police power can be so absolute. And so I, I really applaud the work that Ruben's doing to to uh, touch the minds and the perceptions of police officers as they go out into the community because, you know, we do know police officers deal with all kinds of people. And often they're very young, usually men, but young men and women. And uh, this kind of training is just really really important so that they can sharpen their own sense of fairness. And I think that's one of the things that good implicit bias training does. It invites people into a safe place where they can sharpen if they can be humble enough. That's why I think it's good to tell these stories where they can sharpen their own sense of how to be fairer. Even if I think I'm already fair, I can always be more, more fair. I don't know anybody who practices perfect fairness. Um, so um, yeah. So Anyway, I think that's, that's about all I have to say. When I do the trainings, I think Monica's right. I like to tell stories about myself because those stories about myself allow me to laugh at my own um, fragility in this whole thing. And so when I can laugh at myself, it just tends to make, make it easier for people to come on into the space I'm trying to teach in. So um, well,
2: well, that's, not, all not,
3: not, say. that's all I had to say, Clarence. I'm gonna keep it short now.
2: And, and I know why you're gonna keep it short because today's your anniversary.
3: And, oh yeah, you uh, my Wife sitting there waiting. And for me I know I,
2: I I have the in my mind the visual situation. I see you moving around all through this interview, so I know what's going on. And we're gonna start landing. We're gonna start landing this interview. But I have one question that I want everyone to contribute to, so that we can get to that point. All right, we we we've, we've defined it. We we've given examples. We've heard stories, as uh, uh, Brother William has pointed out. One thing that I'd like to hear now is. How do we actively, if we, if we can't reverse it in three hours, I'm sure you're gonna solve all the problems in the world. And I know that's not right. But say someone has this uh, epiphany through the workshop and like, aha, wow, I, I have issues. I have this, that, and the other. But in the three hours, if they're groping they're for a way to manage that thought or to explore themselves, what do you give them before you wrap up uh, this time together and and what strategies do you give them to sort of self-correct themselves? And I'll start uh, where we began before with Ruben, and then we'll go from Ruben to uh, Monica, and then we'll end up with Brother William.
0: Well, I, I've never had that question before. Uh, we, normally the responses that I get is, it's, wow, thank you for not uh, uh, judging me, or uh, thank you for not uh, uh, Saying that, that I'm a, a negative person, and uh, when when they when I hear those words, that individual is actually listening to anything. um However, we do come back constantly, or I might get approached uh, again and said, "You know what? I, I see things from a different light based on this training." Or, you know what? I, I sat down. that you show me the Freedom Riders. I wanted to see the whole thing, and I sat down with my wife and kids. And we watch it together now. These are people telling me this. I never asked it, and they'll come back and tell me later when I see them when we retrain again. Uh, so so, in a direct way, you know, I get the feedback that it's a positive feedback from people that I've, I've never really dealt with before. Now that being said, another aspect I think because I do it very quickly is that through my years doing this, uh, working for the state police, it's thirty years on. So I've developed certain friends that people don't look like me. We have a certain particular bond, if you will. If I say to this person that might be a white officer, listen, trust me when I say to you, you know, people of color look off at officers a different way, and you have to be conscious of this. That individual look at me and says, since they know me for a long time and said, Wow, I appreciate you letting me know. Now we don't share that with the public, but that was truly happened with us because. If you experience certain things together, you develop a certain bond that you're gonna believe that next person that tells you that. So for the young folks, is what I explained earlier. For the people that have been all around me for a certain period of time, we talk about it a different avenue, but we also get that message across based on the trust that we develop. Thanks, Ruben. Yeah.
4: Um I, you know this question makes me think of like, what can we do as individuals, right? Like what can we actually do as a person? What can I do in my everyday life to help create change? And I think um, I was just talking about this in a therapy session um, today, because I have a a family there now part of an interracial like family, you know, and and that's new for some people. And, you know, I was being asked advice, you know, about how do we, and I think the the biggest thing to do is be open and willing to engage in the conversations so much of the miscommunication the misunderstanding happens when we feel afraid to go there with folks because we don't want to offend you know and i've had a lot of my like white people like i'm not trying to offend anybody i don't want to upset anybody so i just don't say anything because i don't want to say the wrong thing and you know when fear is running your show Um, we're off track. You know, when all of us are being ruled by, by fear or being too afraid or too timid, Um, And so I would just encourage everyone to lean into your discomfort to say, look, I don't know, I don't know about this and I'm not trying to offend, but I wanna have an engaged conversation about this um, so that I can learn more. Like just about the LGBTQ uh, discussion we had. And then brother, thank you so much for sharing your your moment. You know, Just you saying, is ma'am correct? You opened up the space for someone to go, actually no, but thanks for asking, wow, you know? And so I just think, we all have to get over We're all scared. Okay. If we can start there, sure. We're all scared to talk about race. We're all not trying to hurt each other's feelings. I think that that's really going to take us far and propel us forward. I also think, um, and if you take our training, we'll talk more about this. It's about slowing down very um, quick thought processes and, and not just acting on impulse, but giving yourself a beat, giving yourself a breath to really think through decisions um, um, and, and open up time for that. But the more you talk and the more you share, the better the world is. So,
3: Brother William, your turn. Um, you know, I want to tell Ruben, uh, Ruben said he hadn't been asked that question before and then Clarence and William, they have a sense, they have a talent for asking questions you haven't heard before. So congratulations, you got one brother. Um, so I've I actually forgot what the question was, but- um, well,
2: well, in the in the 35 seconds you have to answer.
3: Okay,
2: so okay. <laughs> It might be. Uh, how do you get your participants and your implicit bias training, you know, if they have this sort of moment where the light comes on? Wow, I have issues and I need to work on my issues. How do you get them to manage that behavior?
3: I like people to tell stories and you can tell because yeah. I like to tell stories. So I try to get people to tell me some time in their life when they felt this insecurity and they had to work through it. Sometime when you felt your palms sweating and you said, but I can't stop. I got to get through this. What, tell me about a time when you overcame your doubts and you worked through it. And then share that with everybody so everybody can see that they're not alone in trying to deal with doubts and anxieties and isms and schisms like Bob Marley says, you know, you just... And everybody has those moments, Clarence, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, everybody right. has those moments when you gotta work through something that you don't understand and you don't get, and you don't see the clarity of it in that moment. But it's out there, but you gotta right. keep going. Yeah.
2: Thank you, sir. You're welcome, thank you. And I, I want to thank all of you uh, for coming on. Time again has, has uh, crept up on us, but uh, we do want to thank uh, William Morris, who you just heard, Attorney William Morris, elaborating on his techniques and his strategy and intervention style. And we want to thank licensed clinical social worker, Monica Fleetwood Black and Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte for joining us for our part two conversation on systemic implicit bias ways to reverse and or manage this behavior as a program note we are hoping to bring to you a part three segment of this conversation so stay tuned for more coming your way bring it on
3: last time we talked you said we were going to do 20 of these uh well the contract i had to revise the contract
1: And on that note, Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, we would like to hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. Our address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. And also, if you have an
2: event or happening the African American community should know about, please send that information also directly to the Bring It On staff. Again, that's bring it On at wfhb.org.
1: Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, assistant producer is yours truly, consultant, and WFHB News Department director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Chantal Lafontante. The original theme music is created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William
2: Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB.
0: You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South
1: Central Indiana and beyond.
0: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's it at wfhb.org.